In recent years, we've seen a trend of a certain type of political leader that is taking office on the global scene. People like Maduro in Venezuela, Putin in Russia, Duterte in the Philippines, and even our own President Trump shows inclinations, if not at least respect for this style of leadership. They share a common thread of muscular, assertive leadership that promises to protect us from them with the goals of restoring the glory of the nation to an idyllic state in the minds of a significant portion of the population. This is the kind of leadership some find necessary to fight against the tide of unwelcome change. But this is also the kind of leadership that many fear because it means infringing on the rights of people groups who don't share the same values as these leaders. In the United States, we are beginning to hear how presidential hopefuls are beginning to share their alternative vision of the United States that they believe will best serve the nation. Core question behind all the hype, though, what kind of leader truly serves the people and walks that out herself or himself? We've been walking through the Gospel of John in this Future Life message series where we look at the kind of life Jesus calls us to experience in the future and in the present. In the passage we heard read, Jesus gives us a vastly different vision of leadership. It's a kind of leadership that serves. And we see Jesus set the example of that kind of leadership. In today's message, we want to look at how Jesus gives us two things. The example of servant leadership and the power for servant leadership. The example of servant leadership and power for servant leadership. Now, quick context. If you've been following along in the series, we're just about halfway through the Gospel of John. We're just past the halfway point. You can catch the message online at wcfchurch.org sermons, or as a podcast on the Apple or Google stores. Now, last week, we looked at Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead in John chapter 11. And in John chapter 12, Mary anoints Jesus' feet with oil and her hair. And then Jesus enters Jerusalem on a donkey. People are hyped and believing in Jesus because word had spread of raising Lazarus from the dead. Now, if the Gospel of John were a screenplay, John might have begun to bring things to a climax here. Up to this point, excitement over the identity of Jesus as the anticipated Messiah has been slowly building. If there was ever a campaign manager on Jesus' run, this would be the time to bite with his entrance into Jerusalem being celebrated by crowds cheering him on, polling data might show that this is the time to announce his run for kingship. He goes on to build a successful campaign. A media blitz ensues, and on election night, it looks like Jesus might lose. It goes to recount, and it turns out he wins in the last minute. The crowd goes wild. Cue the soundtrack and roll credits. But that's not how the story plays out. John slows the whole story down here. Chapters 13 to 17 take place over the Passover meal. Chapters 18 to 21 describe Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. So here in chapter 13, we see Jesus' first act in the Passover meal with the 12 disciples, where the crowds are wanting to crown him as a new leader, heralding him with cheers and palm branches. This leader spurns all that attention and focuses on this new community about to be carried on by his 12 disciples. 
When a leader first steps into her position, she might typically gather her senior staff to find out the current state and make some priority decisions. She'll take some time to find core competencies of her team and set a new vision. But Jesus doesn't seem to do conventional leadership philosophy here. He, as the respected leader, does something the leader of a new movement has never done. Rather than rally his inner circle, his cabinet members, together to hear a new strategic plan and create a list of milestones and role assignments and titles, he simply pauses in the middle of a meal and begins serving them. And this isn't just any meal. It's the Passover meal. The one meal where the people of Israel remember how God delivered Moses and their ancestors for Egypt, from Egyptian captivity through the sacrifice of an unblemished lamb. It's also this final Passover meal that forms the basis for our communion meal that we are about to share. On the highlight event where Israel remembered the faithfulness and mercy of God to preserve their lives and set them free, Jesus, the Son of God, does one of the most intimate and menial tasks. In the middle of the meal, he steps away from the table, he removes his garment. And while his disciples look at their master and teacher, he takes a towel and he begins to wash wash the feet of his disciples one by one. Now, this is not a familiar practice to us. We can think of washing our hands before a meal, hopefully. And typically, guests arriving in a home would have their feet washed by non-Jewish slaves because it was considered unclean. Now, if you feel enough irritation towards irresponsible dog owners messing up your shoes on the sidewalk in the city, you'd likely be going ballistic in the ancient Near East. Sandaled feet were dusty and filthy from walking in unpaved streets with no sewage systems, no street sweepers, or trash collection. Unlike Da Vinci's Last Supper painting, which shows Jesus and the disciples seated around a table, many meals often involved sitting on the floor with your feet pointed away from the table because they were dirty. This was likely the situation for the meal that Jesus shared with his disciples. And John tells us in verse 2 that the evening meal was in progress. Takes place in the middle of a meal. I've only had a pedicure once in my life. And as amazingly refreshing as the experience was, it was also incredibly intimate. No one else has touched my feet and seen the calluses, even cleaned out the toe jam and scrubbed between my toes like that. Ever. Not even Julia. Now, that being said, until that point, I also hadn't realized that a Dremel power tool was needed for the dead skin on my heels. Now, it's incredibly disarming and humbling to have someone touch your feet. Now, the pedicurists was being paid for the job. But here, Jesus, God in the flesh, chooses to serve his followers in this humbling task, often reserved for slaves or non-Jews. He does it without being asked to. After completing this with each and every one of his disciples, Jesus tells them in verse 15, I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Jesus invites his followers to serve in such a sacrificial manner as he has. In Vancouver, 
I once signed up to do the Grand Fondo. It's a 122 kilometer or 75 mile cycling event from Vancouver to Whistler. The first time I paid to participate, the second time though, I signed up to serve as a volunteer ride marshal that goes along the route to make sure cyclists are getting along okay. As a volunteer, you get swag. And most importantly, I got to ride the ride without paying $250 for it. And they arranged for a ride back for you. Yes, my volunteering was serving the needs of the event, but really it was self-serving. Because if I didn't get what I wanted, I probably wouldn't have done it. Now, most of us will serve because we get something out of it. But Jesus sets another motivation. It's service that is motivated by love, not self-interest. In verse 1, Jesus knew that this would be the final time to be with his disciples. And John tells us that Jesus serves his disciples out of love. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. His service was motivated by other-centered love. Jesus meets the practical needs of his disciples, but also their spiritual needs. The washing of the feet met their immediate needs. He cleansed the filth of the day attached to their feet. But his act of washing was a sign of a less apparent, but even more important need. He served them by cleaning the filth attached to their hearts that affected their relationship with God. This kind of washing was to be complete when he went to the cross for the sins of the world that separate humanity from the living God. How do we know Jesus intends this symbolic cleansing of hearts? Through his interaction with Peter, when Peter misunderstands what Jesus comes to do when he cleans Peter's feet. At first, Peter is offended by his master's offer to serve him. But when Jesus says, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Peter then goes on to ask Jesus to wash his entire body. Verse 10, Jesus answers Peter's request. Those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet, for their whole body is clean. And you are clean, though not every one of you. Jesus tells Peter that Peter is clean, but not every one of you. Some have been made whole by Jesus. But those, like Judas here, who reject Jesus, don't get to experience Jesus' cleansing power. Jesus' service was motivated by love and sought the best outcome for those he led. This kind of servant leadership also seems to be costly. It seemed to cost him this, his self-respect, as John tells us, that Jesus served all those seated at the table, including the one who was to betray him, Judas, that very evening. Can you imagine a leader you know doing that for one of his or her traitors? Verse 10, the second half of it says, And the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. Jesus served his followers in a way to make them clean. Service to the world is to make things right in the world. The way Jesus serves here as a leader differs greatly from the leadership models we find in our day and age. Though he was a master and teacher, Jesus shows a willingness to lead in a way that seeks the best for his followers. It's humble, it's sacrificial, 
and it's costly. It's a kind of leadership that places the well-being of the students before the teachers. As we talk about the leaders we have in our lives, do we see this kind of leadership exemplified in our supervisors or our teachers? It seems to be a rare quality to see in others, and it's a challenging quality to live out as a leader. As Jesus commands his disciples seated around the table, he invites us to this path of servant leadership. You might be thinking, sounds great, Andrew, when you say it, but that kind of servant leadership sounds too good to be true. How do we even get there? Where do we get the resource to serve in the way that Jesus calls us to? In most circumstances, seeing a leader step down to serve those they lead in such a humbling manner would seem to indicate weakness and powerlessness. But we don't get the sense of that here with Jesus. Look at verse 3. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. Jesus served and led in such a manner, not because of his powerlessness, but because of his power. Jesus could walk against all opposition and questioning because he knew that the living God had put all things under his power. Jesus knows where he comes from and to where he will go to. He knows from whom he comes from and to whom he will go. Because he was secure in his identity and because he knew where his power came from, he was able to serve those he led with such humility, yet with such confidence. There was nothing to beneath him. Jesus knew that the source of his power and influence lay not in the number of followers he had or the kind of platform he had, but in the power that was granted by the ruler of the universe. He served others in a humbling way, not because he had lost power, but because he had held true power. In washing the disciples' feet, what looks like a leader who gives up power is actually a leader who demonstrates true power. In verse 13, Jesus says, You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. Jesus refers to himself with two specific titles, teacher and Lord. Teacher is the Jewish sign of respect for the rabbi, and Lord is the same term used by the Romans to hail Caesar as supreme ruler. So Jesus here is claiming his universal power over Jews and Gentiles, essentially his power over all humanity. Yet he uses that power to serve others rather than to build up his ego or his own kingdom. There's a TV series called Designated Survivor. The premise in that series is that the U.S. Capitol building was bombed and wiped out the entire U.S. government, the House, Senate, and Executive Office, with the exception of the designated survivor, played by Kiefer Sutherland. He plays the Secretary of Housing and Urban Development. But because he was brought in as an academic by the president, he's a newbie politician who has to learn to play the game in D.C. He asks the newly appointed Speaker of the House to win over votes to get the government running. But she asks for a favor in return in the future. Power often seems to be a zero-sum game. Someone wins and someone loses. Jesus views power in a vastly different way than we do in our world. For Jesus, power is not a zero-sum game, where one person's demonstration of power comes at the expense of someone else's, or the apparent loss of power with an interaction results in the other party gaining that power at your expense. 
we see signs of this zero-sum game in Peter's interaction with Jesus. Peter goes from, you will never wash my feet, to don't just wash my feet, but my hands and my head as well. In Peter's mind, when Jesus washes his feet, either Jesus wins or Peter does. But Jesus doesn't see it that way. Andy Crouch comments on his particular story in the book, Playing God, Redeeming the Gift of Power. Power is the capacity to coerce another to obey. And in this sense, Jesus wins. Jesus overcomes Peter's resistance and secured obedience. But Peter, in losing, has won too. He's won a place at Jesus' table in this perplexing new kingdom. For Jesus, with all the power of the universe at his disposal, he never once used power to uphold his identity and to gain a following. Instead, we see Jesus take his power and serve others. He used his power creatively to bring life, healing, and cleansing to others. He used his power to redeem and bring the flourishing of God's kingdom wherever he went. So in the eyes of his disciples, in his washing of their feet, and in the eyes of all onlookers when Jesus goes to the cross, Jesus looks like he's losing his power when he serves the needs of those around him. But in fact, he's not losing power. He's using it to serve others. Continuing with Andy Crouch's work in, in the book, in the Gospels, Jesus interrupts his agenda for those who have nothing to offer him but need everything from him. Over and over, when he performs a miracle, he ensures that when his agenda is interrupted by someone who could benefit his cause, any potential accumulation of privilege is averted. Jesus has no need to stockpile power or impulsively grasp at what he wants or needs. He knows as deeply as a human being, we can know that the Father has given all things into his hands. Like in the reality of living in the reality of infinite abundance, he can steer his course ever more clear towards the abyss of powerlessness from which no one has ever returned, stopping only to restore the true image in anyone who asks. Jesus gives us an example of true servant leadership because he was secure in his identity and source of power. And when he invites his disciples to follow his example, he's not just inviting them to a life of sacrificial service out of a place of emptiness, but to serve out of a place of fullness and authority, with his authority. As we trust Jesus with our lives and follow his example, we find ourselves entrusted with the same authority and empowered by the same power as Jesus. We, too, can live in that reality of infinite abundance, as Andy Crouch puts it. That's the future life now. So we can have great confidence that when we serve, we don't do it out of a place of lack, but out of a place of fullness. If you are in a position of leadership in your workplace, as you follow Christ's example, you can prayerfully serve that those you lead you can lead them in ways that bring life to them. When we serve in Jesus' name, we join him in his mission to redeem the world and lead it towards its flourishing. As Jesus inaugurated this new mission together with his friends around the Passover table, he was inviting them to participate together as a new community. And that community continues to manifest itself to the world through Christian communities gathered in Jesus' name, like Washington Community Fellowship. Now, there are, of course, many great initiatives and organizations to serve and get involved with. If you worship as a Jesus follower here at WCF, 
I invite you to consider one practical way of following Jesus' example by joining a team here at WCF. Last week, Rebecca Hunt introduced the deacons serving the WCF community and invited you to all join together in the mission here at WCF. The ushers have copies of these, and we'll get you a copy if you raise your hands. I invite you to fill this blue sheet out, or you can do the same online by going to the link wcfchurch.org slash serve. That's wcfchurch.org slash serve. Together, we hope to encourage each other in following Christ's example of servant leadership. And in doing so, we find that together, the future life in Christ becomes an ever more apparent reality now. Amen.